Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Hey, everybody. This is Gabe Lesra. Um, I'm including this bit uh, of the show that is my passion project, Let's Fix Football, where I talked with Omar Vind, who you know from the Managing Madrid podcast, uh, about Cristiano Ronaldo, about FIFA, and about a number of other topics. If you like this show, please check out Let's Fix Football on iTunes. Uh, you can get us there. You can also follow us on ballondorder.com or on uh, Twitter at Let's Fix Football. Uh, so I hope you all enjoy. We talk about Cristiano Ronaldo's transfer to Juventus, about how the Financial Times stole my article that I posted on Managing Madrid, and uh, about a number of other relevant things. All right, please enjoy. And my passion is to rid this great nation of America of soccer. Soccer here in the U.S. is due in part to the influx of immigrants saying, quote, I promise you, no American's great-grandfather was born here is watching soccer. is a waste of our time, energy, and resources. I have a dream. I will not rest. Until I see nothing. That being said, I wanted to, so I'm just going to shift around the outline a little bit to, to talk a little bit about that exact thing marketing leagues internationally because. Um, for or sorry, for the Financial Times, one of the preeminent uh, newspapers, or well, I guess yeah, I guess a newspaper, financial magazine slash newspapers in the world, uh, published an article um which you shared to me, and I hadn't actually seen about how Juventus is making some bets on the Ronaldo deal, and they essentially, I wouldn't say exactly, and they don't focus on what I focused on, which was the FIFA's uh. Uh, standard for lo- uh, uh, looking at these transactions between related parties, but they do spend the entire article talking about how essentially uh, Juventus is making a gamble on what they are calling the Ronaldo effect to wildly increase viewership and sponsorship. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty much exactly the article that you wrote like around a month ago, which I think, you know, kind of validates all your analysis. Like, like you said, Financial Times preeminent you know, financial newspaper, it's it's interesting. Like, I was highly, highly skeptical of this gamble to buy Ronaldo for the amount of money that they did. And, yeah. you know, I still, I'm still slightly skeptical because it is a risk. Like, even this article, you know, and I, I've read, like, three or four reports. Now, I've, I've read, like, a long, like, 30-page report, which I sent to you, Gabe, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I've yeah. read this one. They all... I'll come to the conclusion that Juventus is gambling on a bunch of things happening for this to work out. And the question is how, 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 how likely are those things? I think, I think it's justifiable. I think if you want to, to really like enter that elite of the elite, the, the cream of the crop clubs, which are really only like four, they're like what Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester United from like a financial, like yeah, right, perspective. You have to make these types of gambles because it's so hard to break into. Like even PSG has all this money. They bought Neymar and Mbappe. They're still not at that level. Right. Like this is something you kind of have to do if you want to get there. If you want to win the Champions League, if you want to, you know, be be considered up with a Barca or Real Madrid. So we'll see how it goes. It it could it could end up not working out for them in the way that they want. I mean, all it takes is Ronaldo to get injured seriously injured and at this age he's not going to recover that well and then it's all done but yeah. if, it, if, if, if it works i think if 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 
Ronaldo goes on to have the season we expect him to, even accounting for his natural decline, then I think there's a chance that it works out for them. And, you know, yeah. we'll, we'll see how it goes. This is a really interesting thing. So, we, yeah, I, people should people should be following this a little bit more closely than they are. Obviously, people are not, not saying they aren't following Ronaldo, but I think that following the financials of this, I mean, what what actually is amazing to me is that Juve or the the Financial Times and I both came up with about the same yearly cost for this deal, except for theirs is about ten million more because I wasn't accounting for two other factors of the Ronaldo deal. Because on top of the amount paid to Real Madrid, they also have to pay a certain percentage of the deal of of his salary to previous two previous clubs, Manchester mm-hmm. United and Sporting, both of whom have retain some rights to the amount of money that Ronaldo, uh, any transfer uh, that Ronaldo is paid for. So they have to pay those That's a, a little bit more. And then on top of it, there's a couple million euros a year in agent fees. And that's that's just on, to- on top of all of this money that they're already in trouble with. They, they have to pay for that. And so we saw them, we haven't seen uh, Juventus make major player or asset sales because they really, I think they really are gambling on like I said, this this idea of the Ronaldo effect, which the uh, Financial Times I think correctly talked about, how sure there is a lot uh, a lot to be gained in terms of a marketing perspective, but uh, it it to me, Ohm, it seemed it seems like a more of a gamble than maybe people really thought originally, partially because I. Uh, Partially, partially because you're hearing a lot of these same phrases about how, yeah, this is going to help us open up to the like Asian markets, which every club says, well, the way we're going to fix our finances or way we're going to expand and become a global brand is by opening ourselves up to the Asian markets in this way. And sure, maybe this happens, but it's a lot more of a gamble, I think, than 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 I think some of the some of the writers are, ex, you know calling it just because mm-hmm. it's not a given that you know people in like suddenly adding Ronaldo will make this Juventus right like these are two different brands adding Ronaldo to the Juve brand generally sure it'll help a lot but it won't necessarily by definition catapult Juventus into a mm-hmm. uh, a new stratosphere in China or in India just by itself yeah i think even in the Financial Times article, which you correctly say, which was a little more bullish, you know, a little more positive uh, about the financial side of this deal, even they, they mentioned like a critic in the piece briefly who said, you know, the gamble is Ronaldo is going to make Syria more popular, which is like the end goal, right? Like that's the way you like to, to get more right. exposure is the end goal for how Juventus sees this deal being like a financial payoff. Part of that is contingent on the league as a whole becoming more attractive, not just, you know, Juventus itself. You know, that's part of why the Premier League, like they, they even said in the article, like some of the bottom teams in the Premier League could pull, pull off this deal, you know, financial deal for Ronaldo. No sweat, which is absolutely mind boggling if you think yeah. about it. And it's all because of what we were talking about before, how the Premier League has marketed itself, you know, to be the most attractive league in the world. And, and then I think. I think there's also, like, I was surprised Juventus didn't sell more because they sold Higuain, which everyone knew was going to happen. It had to happen, not just for tactical reasons, the fact that they play the same position, but because Higuain is on massive wages. But then they, they then they don't sell anyone else, really, like, who, who has those high wages. And then they go on and, you know, increase Sammy Kadira. I think he's 31 years old now. Like, they increase his contract a lot to something like 230000 you know, if I remember correctly, yeah, I think it's right. That, that to me is that to me is like a little surprising, and I was like, I don't know how that's necessarily going to work out. So that means, you know, aside from selling Higuain, like you mentioned, they're gambling a lot on on the Ronaldo effect, and there's a lot of risk there. There is a lot of risk there, and they didn't. Their return for Higuain actually wasn't anywhere close to I think what it could have been if they had tried to. Uh, to shop him a little bit. I mean, they sold him to AC Milan. It was part of this weird swap deal that invo- involved Bonucci going back to uh, back to Juventus. Bonucci, by the way, who's what thirty six? Like he's still very good, but 
you know, they they are suddenly gambling on and by the way, shipping off Bushy's a twenty five. He's not he's thirty one. Right All right, now. he's not quite as old as, as I thought. But they are gambling on a back line that's gonna feature three main players who are over in not just you know, so on the wrong age of end of thirty and I don't remember is it Barzogli then who's like thirty six? One of uh maybe Maybe Barzogli is definitely the oldest player there. So it, they're gambling on a very old back line to and you know to to solidify this attack against uh, you know to, to to solidify their defense because and and that seemed to me to be a gamble on top of all the other gambles that they're making, which is it's in a strange one because I mean and I think a lot of people and and in in. Um, uh, Juve would say it's worth it if they can win the Champions League, but we know how fluky the Champions League can be, and uh, just how just having Ronaldo doesn't at all guarantee you a Champions League title. Just because Ronaldo's won four out of the last five, he didn't win any of the previous editions, even when he was on Real Madrid and with a lot of good players surrounding him. He is a very good player. He's on the wrong side of thirty himself. And it's not. I mean, and you're you're really wagering everything on being able to win the Champions League, which is a, it's. I mean, it's a coin flip. It's not. I mean, Real Madrid is the reason it's such a historic thing to do the three peat, the double, much less the three peat, was that this is a competition that it, that involves so much so much luck and and a bunch of two tie matches where you know into like small individual moments can put you over the top. Like I, one of my most vivid memories is uh, I think it was. Oh two, oh three, Real Madrid in in I think the quarters or the semis playing against Juve, where they they I think were pretty clearly the better team. But then Luis Figo missed a penalty, and Luis Figo didn't miss penalties. I mean, that's all it takes. Yeah, I mean, even if you want to look at Real Madrid's three victories, which no one no one can take that away from the team, like they deserved it. But if you even want to pick that apart, especially our our third Champions League victory you can rightly point to a bunch of ties and say, yeah, I don't know. On a, another day, I don't think Real Madrid goes through, especially oh, the Bayern, yeah. Munich, Bayern Munich tie. You know, the Juventus tie was definitely a case of Ronaldo just being a level above everyone else. Even in Liverpool, against Liverpool in the final, like we were looking pretty shaky until Salah became injured and like the whole momentum was killed <laughs> and we were able to slowly work our way back in. So like you said, it's not a gamble. The article even mentions like, the, the Juventus president is gambling on going really far in the Champions League, and it would be a disaster if they if they didn't go far. So, like, say they get unlucky and they get Barcelona in the round of 16. Because, remember, Ronaldo can face Barcelona now because he's no longer with the Spanish team. That was not something Real Madrid had to worry about. If he faces Barcelona in the round of 16, you know... Or Real Madrid. Or, like, or, like... or Real Madrid itself. <laughs> like, they, they could realistically be out even if Ronaldo plays really, really well. And then all of a sudden, the deal just doesn't look that good from a financial standpoint because they need to go far in the knockout rounds. I'd say at least semifinals to get the money that they're expecting from the Champions League because yeah. that's part of their calculation. Huge part of their calculation. So, and- I mean, if there was one guy you were going to bet on in the Champions League, it is Cristiano. Oh, yeah. But it... You know, don't don't think this is just a given. Like this could go wrong as much as as much as it could I mean, go. A right. lot of places that even the Financial Times article I didn't talk about uh, as much in my piece because it was more about one of the things that I'm most interested that could go really wrong for them because it would directly impact their ability to increase revenue from sponsorships, which is the question of related party transactions. But I mean, the other one, there are a lot of other things that can go wrong and go wrong kind of aggressively for them and go wrong kind of spectacularly. You know, a Ronaldo injury is just one, you know, part of it. There are a lot of other, a lot of other random things that can go wrong in if you're betting on a lot of things happening the way they are. But it's still, to be frank, I'm still making this deal if I'm Juve. Yeah, I agree with that at the end of the day because. Because I think I mentioned this on one of like the older Madrid podcasts when we were discussing Ronaldo leaving or like before it had been confirmed, but we we all knew what was going to happen. Juventus have are are thinking of, as much as the article where we're talking about talks about the long term and how Juventus sees them boosting their financial, you know, standing in a long term perspective in terms of a legacy standpoint, which is a huge part of this goal, right? Like trying to, to bring them to the top up with the top clubs, not just from a financial standpoint, but legacy wise, they've won yeah, 70 dude. titles in a row, but no one right. talks about that team 
in the same breath that they do about Lionel Messi's Barca or Ronaldo's Real Madrid, and that's because they haven't won a Champions League. Yep. If they um, want to be considered one of the best teams of this generation, they need to win that. And I think that's what they're going for. And so, you know, they signed the best man to do that. And they, they also, I mean, Serie A also, I mean, part of this deal is, again, Serie A becoming more something that people want to watch. And there's a huge question in my mind about whether that's going to be true if you have one team that wins every you know game week in week out. I don't see, I, I honestly don't see how it would be that different from the Bundesliga uh, given that both, we have two teams that win the league every year, uh, and it's and it's really just a question of who can come in second, who's going to make the Champions League, and whether those individual teams will win the Champions League, which would admittedly boost their leagues. I mean, I'm I'm very skeptical, uh, but I'm still making that deal. Let's also there, another important international thing. This is it's funny. This is more of a newsy show than we I guess we can always do, but. Big news coming out of FIFA leaking in the New York Times. Apparently, the FIFA board and and, and FIFA president Yanni Infantino uh, at Infantino. <laughs> to keep directing everyone there, uh, Yanni Infantino. We're talking about doing a kind of broad and sweeping revamp of the way that international transfer system works. Very interesting, Ohm. Yeah. Um- I I mean yeah. here let's just run th- I'm just going to quickly run through it. I it, part of the reason that I that I wanted to bring it up was because I mean it's obviously quite important to talk about but it's because it's one of the few things I've ever seen from FIFA where I actually think that it has the right not the I don't think these are necessarily the right policies or even the right policy ideas but I actually think they are the they are driving at the right concerns. Yeah. Um All right, so they're talking – they really want to deal with um, a lot of things, but one of the things they want to deal with a lot is the – like what they see is a spiraling power of super agents like Mino Raiola, uh, among others. Um, Shout out to Mino Raiola's Twitter account who you should all follow. uh, Also, by the way, shout out to 442, among others, for not publishing – for for (laughs) rejecting my article that the Financial Times then basically published – um, by someone else two months before this was published. Just shout, like, I, I reached out to a bunch of you. You guys are all great. Good job. Way to, <laughs> way to reject that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so it's the, 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 the issues with the growing, so the growing value, uh, uh, player valuation in the market, the growing power of super agents uh, to kind of conduct these deals. I think that I, a good example of, you know the way that these agents and people can can really make make the market feel unfair, which is a big part of this, is the example of the transfer between Malcolm to Barcelona, where he had a he had a contract signed with Roma. I mean, he had a a number of pre agreements with Roma, but his agent was out there angling to get him a better deal with a better team, and at the literally at the last second, after his mother and parents had flown to Rome decided to reroute him to Barcelona where he would sign it that that I think is it's not not great and uh the way that they project and theorize like the, the the they imagine doing this is by kind of processing information and uh, negotiations through a central clearinghouse body and so I think Om, you had a good question about this whether whether the the, the clearinghouse would be a physical location Mm-hmm. My understanding is more that in in financial markets we call it like it's it, it when you buy a stock it's not just you buying a stock um so you have to go through a number of intermediaries the central intermediary is the body that processes the transaction um called the exchange uh and my my uh, my belief and I'm getting a phone call that's cool that's exciting <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and decline this um my uh my belief is that the clearinghouse uh, format will be essentially like that, where there it'll be basically a way to process information uh, where clubs would come to talk to each other uh, and have agents be part, you know, part of the negotiations, but there would be very little uh, transacting through that body behind people's, behind people's back. I also think a clearinghouse would help, uh, teams avoid dealing with what we call the fax machine issue (laughs) because you'd be sending your orders and you're sending your agreements through a single body 
uh, it'd be very, very much easier than. So, for example, Real Madrid and Manchester United had an agreement, but what happened with the fax machine issues, what we call it, is that they didn't fax the paperwork, literally fax the paperwork to FIFA and UEFA in time for that uh, for that transaction to go through. So I think I, I, I sort of like this idea of a, of a central clearinghouse that would allow for more free and open exchange of information and negotiation. Yeah, I... I, I, from what I understand, which is limited compared to your knowledge of this, it seems like it seems like a good concept. You know, I'm interested to see how this plays out again in the the New York Times article. It, it says that this this concept, which is really the the biggest concept that FIFA and Infantino are planning, is going to take several years to implement. Obviously, like there's negotiations that has to be had with clubs. I can't imagine that super clubs are soup are going to be really that happy about FIFA having this level of oversight. Yes. But yeah. I, I think I think in in, in all there is a decent concept, but there's also like there's also problems with it. Like something questionable, right? Like using the, the part of their whole plan is is they don't want like these crazy, you know, two hundred and fifty million, you know, euro type transfers happening anymore because it's just inflating the market out of reach of anyone besides like three to four clubs, literally, is they're going to use some kind of algorithm to benchmark a player's price. And that that is questionable because one, first of all, they need to be really transparent about how this algorithm is used. Yeah. And, you know, there will be lots of arguments over the validity of it. I mean, and just using one single metric to determine that, like how do you take into account like the Ronaldo effect, for example, how do you take into account like decline? Like, I don't know about that. And I'm not so sure yeah. that that part of the plan is actually going to come to fruition. And there are two other parts of the plan that I, I mean, that, that I think is, is very questionable, whether, whether any attempt to benchmark a like top value for a player is either desirable or a good thing. Uh, or a a useful thing that actually would would help make things fair. I just I don't see how that itself is a good idea. And on top of that, you know, and and that anytime where FIFA is using some impenetrable thing to talk about how much money is allowed to flow in one direction, it's just a terrible. It's just not going to work out. There's going to be issues of bribery. There's going to be questions of the algorithm, uh, unless like. Even with, I think, the idea that the algorithm is totally public, I don't think this is – it's just that would ever work. But on mm-hmm. top of that, and the worst, I think, of this are two uh, – you know, one, one, one idea that I, I, don't, I don't hate is that they would require buyout clauses. Um, that I don't hate because buyout clauses can always be quite high. Um, so I don't you, – you can always – as long as they don't cap buyout clauses, then – I think we're fine that that wouldn't affect things that much. I like the idea, the notion of a of a of a where a way that you can just buy the like a a dollar amount that you set on a contract to say you can just buy it. But the one that I really and 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 the one I get what I got really worried about, Ohm, and this this you know, there is a there is a push to the American model, which I I actually think the American model may not result in better the uh, better actual sports but it does result in more competitiveness especially at the top with mm-hmm. you know these things where each team really does sort of believe that they're going to be able to construct a team that would be able to win the championship which is not what occurs right now and i think that's a good and honorable and laudable goal in sports um that being said the way that the Americans constructed had a lot of give and take. A lot of, there were a lot of negative things that happened, and the idea that FIFA would try to do this, and and the idea I'm talking about is the idea would be a salary cap based on a percentage of the team's revenue as um as a mechanism to prevent teams from falling into financial difficulty. That to me seems to be an actually catastrophic idea. Uh, if nothing else, own because a salary cap by definition is not a cap on sure it's a cap on the amount of total money a team can spend but the money that they're talking about is not the money that the team is spending on other stuff it's not even the money that the team is spending to bring players in it's the money the team is spending on wages and if you're going to do a cap on wages you have to give the people who would be directly affected by that a seat at the table 
which means you have to have a players union. If you're going to do a salary cap and you're going to negotiate a salary cap, you have to have a players union and a players union, an international players union that would be able to strike Right, because that's what we've seen in the United States mm-hmm. when the owners try to give a very hard salary cap that would, you know, screw over the entire you know groove of players from the top to the bottom. The players will go on strike, and it's not a fun process. But the players are always in the right when it comes to that stuff because all the owners try to do when they talk about a salary cap is not pay people what they're worth. That is fundamentally what or what what the market would dictate their value is. That's all that is. Yeah, I agree with that hundred percent. Um, that right, like problematic. I think. I think one thing though that I do like about this whole thing the most is FIFA has this idea to, to limit the amount of loan loanees you can have and the amount of, yeah. of amount of loanees you're bringing in, and that to me is a good idea because you have this issue. With, with with the really big teams hoarding talent. It's called the Hirona no issue. Hirona <laughs> <laughs> no paradox. One else can touch, right? Like Chelsea is a huge, you know, is a, is a huge like example of this, right? I think they have forty clubs on, 40, sorry, forty players on loan. Yeah, which is kind of ridiculous, and they they basically own the contracts of all of those players. Like if they want to call them back, they can. You know, no one, no other club can can have those players permanently. Like Chelsea owns a huge market share of of, of players. And one one that, thing one thing about that, on top of that, right, is that it prevents the uh, smaller teams from the business model that they that that has proven effective for a lot of teams, which is you get these young players, you get these exciting players, they help your team continue to play in the top division, then you sell them at a wild profit. And that actually funds the rest of your team's operations for a few years until you can find the next exciting young player. Ajax is famous after their heyday for creating a, a system where you can develop players. Real Madrid has done it wildly successfully as well. Yeah, and and that's the thing, right? Like, if we were to allow this trend to continue, we're, the, the only clubs that would be able to pursue this are ones that have really well-funded, really well-skilled, really well-developed academies, and that's a really hard thing to do. Like, arguably harder than, you know, going out and buying a bunch of superstars because this takes years and years of work, and there's not many clubs across Europe that have those academies. Otherwise, you're a club that just lives off loans, you know, year to year. So the, yeah. I think the article mentions that they wanted to limit to like six to eight. Sounds reasonable. I think clubs would want to negotiate that upwards to like 10 or 12. But that is one very easy way to, to like to, to expand meritocracy in the league a yeah, little bit. Totally I think that would be very beneficial to, 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 young, to the weaker team, sorry. And that's probably the one that can be implemented the fastest and probably the one that would get through other the other idea is kind of shaky lots of questions about them but this one i'm very much behind yeah me too uh me too so i think what in conclusion a lot of kind of media it's funny because i don't want to talk about fifa having good intentions or doing the right thing or you know or whatever but it actually does to me seem like the problems that they're trying to fix at least they appear to have diagnosed some of them uh, i think that's correct to worry about the power of the super agent i mean Raiola, doesn't he like own part of a team or part of a team in england now i mean like I, I'm I'm under the impression that there is a, maybe not him, but there is an agent that owns like a chunk, or his agency owns a chunk of a team, which is fucking insane. Uh, <laughs> and it, and I do think that limiting the power of these super agents to uh, to drive up the not not the wages because it's important to distinguish these things, but to drive up the transfer, the actual amount of transfer, like money that's transacted between the clubs for the contract. That actually, I think, to me is because what, what what we're really saying is that the clubs would otherwise agree on a market price that's lower for the players uh, for the per- the price of the players' contract, not not the the amount of money the player is getting, but what the actual contract costs. And the only reason it doesn't help the player and it doesn't help the two clubs that these people. Uh, 
that, that that they have this much power, the only thing it does is drive that price up. So they because they always get a chunk, a percentage of the total fee. So their incentive is to drive that fee up so high, so to to the extent that sometimes transactions that otherwise the market would allow, otherwise might be beneficial to both cl- both clubs and the player, right, don't occur because of this mm-hmm. mid-level transaction cost that is the power of these super agents like Raiola. Like, it's very possible that a couple years ago, Real Madrid and Paul Pogba and Juventus could have been benefited by making a deal for Pogba. Uh, I don't know. It depends on who what you believe. But I think that one of the reasons that that didn't happen was because of Raiola's insane demands for that drove up the price. Uh, now, in terms of obviously paying players, I think, of course, they should be represented. Of course, they should have agents. But the, the question of getting the club, the getting an agent involved in the actual negotiations over whether a, a club wants to buy the contract of a player, that to me is pretty insane. Agree 100%. Uh, so last topic, because... Um, I want to do a nice and like, yo, this is a good, 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 good level show for us. Um, you, we mentioned at the very beginning of the show that we are kind of seeing a lot of new metrics, a lot of new analytics being created at the same time. I have sort of termed this the end of, I think, the beginning of the soccer analytics revolution. And I think that, I mean, that may have, that exact moment may have occurred with the advent of expected goals. But what we're seeing now is past chaining, showing these maps of past directions, formational heat maps, all of these different things are now being converted into, into usable metrics. And I think, Ohm, to me, the kind of golden goose or holy grail that will signify to me that we're really in the, the next highest stage of sports analytics in this sport would be a predictive measure, right? And a predictive a predictive stat that can that you can say, you know, where where we have, for example, in baseball, we've gotten to a point where we actually have stats that allow and the ability to project based on previous uh, accumulated data, project the uh, very down to the very much granular detail how people will react and and what their seasons are going to look like uh, and what they're going to play as moving forward. And to me, it seems like we're, there's still a lot more guessing in soccer. Though I think some of these analytics really are both beginning to be descriptive and I think we may be getting towards the level where we're going to create something predictive. Yeah, I mean, expected goals was kind of the first step to try to be more predictive, but like obviously it's it's not near perfect in, in that aspect, right? Like the idea, right, is you, you look at what the average is uh, for for people who take shots from a particular location and situation with all these factors, and you take someone who's like doubling their expected goals, and the idea is is you can say, well, I think that's not going to last. Or if you look at a team's defense and and they they're just overperforming their expected goals against by so much, you think you you, you can say, I don't think that's going to last because the quality of chances you just can't keep missing that. Or I think like the goalkeeper. He can't keep, like, for example, De Gea on Manchester United. Like, even though he's exceptional, he can't keep saving like this. But it's, you know, we've, we have these cases where, you know, like Burnley, for example, um, there have been a couple of teams in league, oh, that just consistently keep overshooting expected goals. There's a lot of refinement needed there, but, like, it started a good basis. And then I think, I think the, like, the, the key thing to do is to move beyond non-shot models because, like, shots... Like you said, like you need a huge database of data to to be able to be more predictive. And shots, as often as they are, you know, they they still only happen like fifteen to twenty times a game per team if you're a really good offensive team. So I think uh, AmericanSoccerAnalysis.com. You should definitely read this article if you're interested in this stuff. They wrote an article, you know, late August called "The Next Level of of XG Expected Possession Goals," and it's a non-shot and the whole idea it's it's a little complex there's only so much i can explain it here but essentially the they assign each zone on the pitch an expected goal value a positive one and a negative one and so essentially they're they're saying if you're in the center circle we're assigning a probability that this this possession right here what is the chance that it will turn into a goal 
And then if you turn it over here, what is the chance that the other team would score a goal? And this just opens you up to a totally different like area of expected goals. It gives you so many more data points and it allows you to really, you know, not only analyze a team's style, but start to maybe predict things that are going yeah. to happen. So for example, like the, in, in the article itself, they, they, they go through MLS teams to describe style and they find that, you know, Teams who play the ball out from the back have a lot of negative expected possession goals against them because they're playing in very risky areas. But the sign that a, that a team, you know, it, and then they then they look at the mistakes that happen there. So if you want to play out from the back, essentially what you want to do is you want to have a high negative score, but you don't want to have a lot of mistakes, you know, right. as, as a ratio of those negatives. And that just opens you up to a whole new way of being able to analyze teams and look at how you want to play, like to identify who is the weak link in this chain here, you know, and, you know, how should I set up my team if I want to play out from the back and that kind of stuff. And it allows you to then start your analysis, you know, point all the way from the keeper instead of looking only at the shot. Where this is this is the kind of stuff that like really excites me. And, you know, it's we're still in the realm where it can be understood by like the every day man like i am by no means like this math nerd who knows all this stuff like i know as much math as the average person you know but if you if you just you know take like two minutes to try to understand what they're saying you can get it and that's really exciting because it helps your knowledge when we when to me when we take the next step is like when we go to baseball and like basketball when people start talking about metrics that it's difficult for the average person to understand yeah that's when we've really taken that next leap but now we're in this really exciting stage where we're, we're moving up we're finding new metrics, but everyone can still understand it. And I'd soak up all that information yeah. and learn as much as you can for as long as you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of where we are. Uh, I mean, and, and, and what's, what, what is, I mean, really, really astounding to me about all of this. I mean, about all of this, this is that it's, I mean, maybe it shouldn't be astounding, but it's coming amazingly um it does appear to be coming a lot from the United States. And it shouldn't be surprising me because mm-hmm. the, the United States is where the original sort of sports analytics movement came from. But that being said, <laughs> this the fact that this uh, that the these things are happening with the basis uh, being a lot being MLS teams is fascinating. And like obviously we what we've done is we've created now we see like you know, uh, uh, we've seen it. We saw X goal chain. We've seen now. I mean, this stat is truly incredible. But what the 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 way people are working with expected goals is, I think, uh, the next step after this is a soccer version of something called uh, something like wins above replacement. I, mm-hmm. I I think that when you get enough of these metrics that are able to quantify players who are all over like right now expected goals uh are as much more of a team metric but this you know this uh 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 possession expected possession goals appears to me to include metrics that are actually granular enough to talk about players by themselves so it's not just basketball mm-hmm. plus minus how does team do when the guys off the pitch blah blah it's actually like the notion of over an entire season if we can get enough and and if we continue to think about this data over and ex- extrapolate it over an entire season, when we now have this type of data over an entire season, I believe that we will be able to create something like a soccer war, uh, which is an incredible stat. It would be an incredible and, and a monumental achievement to be able to quantify the uh, – but both right the the positive and the negative pose- expected possession goals of each player and say over the course of the season this person uh the average is this this person was below it one of the best ways like x team could improve would be by bringing someone in who who was at least league average at this at this position based on his uh expected possession goals for example like this that is sort of where the war, like this, this player by himself in an 11 player team, this player added this many wins, right? Or like we quantify them as wins, but like, it's a, it's a fascinating stat. And I, I mean, that's, what's one of the things that's really excited to me about this, because I see in this stat, uh, one, another thing, you know, I see in this stat, the ability to talk about, uh, 
to talk about defenders and to talk about, you know, in the terms of expected goals, which which is something that people have finally begun to understand. Yeah, I I agree with all of that 100%. I think it's interesting that you brought up the point about how Americans are kind of driving this forward because expected goals was a thing before before football, before soccer, and it was a thing in hockey. And it was, I think it was Americans who developed that stat there. And then it was Americans. I think Kaylee, Michael Kaylee popularized that idea within soccer with his, with right. his like expected goal charts. And I think, I, you know, because going back to like, friend of the Man Madrid of, podcast, by the way, Michael Kaylee. Yeah, he was on. Keon interviewed him a couple of weeks ago. And going back to like our very like original point that the, at, at the beginning of the podcast, how you know, there's this kind of like tribalism against having people outside your area be part of sports. There is a certain prejudice against having Americans in the sport, partly because we we, we say soccer and we don't say football. It's just like <laughs> these <laughs> these stupid Americans, what are they doing in our sport? We don't want you here. You're too different. I think this is a really like tangible piece of evidence that Americans are really, I mean, not that we need to justify our existence in the sport. We can do whatever the fuck we want here because like, it's a global sport. Right. But this is an example that we're tangibly bringing something to the sport that, you know, other nations don't because our culture surrounding statistics is totally different. Like in England, there's just a lot of anger, you know, a lot of resistance against this type of thing because, you know, it's traditional. It's about who can like, I don't know, like beat up the other person more that wins the game, like the stupidest fucking ideas. But that it's coming from here shows that like this is why it's great that football is a global sport yeah. because it gets to benefit from so many different areas and so many different perspectives and why it's absolutely fucking mind-boggling to be like you're not a real fan if you don't live here and attend the games live. Yeah. Like you're missing out, dude. Like this is just one example. I mean there's there's simpler examples just like you know some of the great chants like come from South yeah. America, et cetera, et cetera. This is why I love the sport and I'm just so excited to see how – where we're going with this whole stat, you know, stat thing, and I'll I'll be watching closely, and and if you aren't, I I encourage you guys to to follow closely as well. Yeah, get into this now because it is it's going to revolutionize the game. I, I I really believe it. I wrote just to plug something I wrote. I wrote in 2011 an article about the coming soccer statistics revolution, and I feel very good about that article. If you want to go look that up, that's me. Um, uh, it's an article in the Atlantic magazine called Here Come the Soccer Nerds <laughs> or Geeks. I can't remember what it was, but you can look that up. It's a very interesting one. It's about how um, at that point Manchester City became the first uh, team in all of Europe or the first major team in Europe to release um, time and uh, time and movement data that they had collected over uh, a period of seasons to the public not exactly to the public, not like the original baseball stuff where no one was even tracking it. So Bill James literally just sat and watched games and tracked, you know, the 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 angle of balls and all that stuff. But they had, they had a, a contract with Opta, which is the great sports statistics company that also jealously guards this data. But they decided that they would release it to people who would present them with ideas of how to use it. So that I wrote that back then. We have. I think much better data now, but the key thing, um, and I talked to our friend Graham Macri, who I don't know if he still posts as much, but he did incredible soccer. He was one of the, so he created a baseball metric that we still talk about today. Um, it was one of the FIP metrics, fielding independent patch, uh, fielding independent pitching metrics. Um, and he was working on soccer ones. And what we see with Graham's, uh, which what he used to do is create very detailed pass maps, which was before anyone was really doing that stuff. He was creating these incredibly detailed pass maps. And now what we see is the same uh, 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 website, American Soccer Analysis, with the same you know uh, group of people, Elliot McKinley in particular, I really like, um, has been creating these very, I think, brilliant maps uh, of the passing angles from each player in each of normal position and the distance that they go on there on the pitch. And you can overlay that over time to see how different coaches have asked different players to play. And it's an incredibly interesting descriptive metric. Uh, so 
this is just another part of, like I said, I think this is the the end of the beginning of the soccer statistics revolution. And I say that partially because, Ohm, as you know, uh, a few, I don't know if it was weeks now or maybe months, God, Jose Mourinho said something along the lines of, yeah, they were better. Or, well, I don't think they were better. We had more expected goals. And I was like, fuck, that's a huge get. That's a huge get for us. <laughs> I actually didn't hear that. I know Wenger said that, I think, like last season or the season before. No, Mourinho said it. That's really good. Oh, dude, that's insane. That is awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah, despite all the, like, resistance in England, like, Sky Sports has, like, put up expected goal, like, charts on 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 their TV broadcasts. Like, I mean, they did some of it, like, wrongly, which, you know, hurts a little bit. But, you know... It, it's going to be a struggle. Like, you know, you take a couple steps forward, you take a step backward. It's going to take a while. Like, expecting is not a new idea. It's been around, like, like Gabe, when you wrote this article, I think, like, two years later is when it became a real concept in, in soccer. So, like, 2013, when Ted Nutzen decided yep. to, like, start stats bomb and everything. Yep. So, yep. it's it's going to take time for the public. Like a lot of people still don't like it. Like, even though this is a well-established metric, no reasonable or like respected statistician contests the validity or value of it. You know, it's going to take time, but I, it's, it's just a cultural shift. People are resistant to change. People don't like their ideas being disproved, disproven by numbers. But, you know, 10 years from now, I think we'll be in a lot better place culturally outside of the United States. And that's when it gets even more exciting. And and I can't wait, honestly.
Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions.